Good morning again. It's a blessing to see everybody here this morning. I draw your attention to Luke chapter 11 as we continue through the model prayer, which is often called the Lord's Prayer, which I prefer the name model because, as we discussed last week, the Lord's high priestly prayer is seen in John chapter 17, whereas this prayer is given as it were a model for us, an outline that teaches us certain principles or distinctions of prayer. You can even see this in Matthew chapter 6 is when he says, in this manner pray. He doesn't say pray this exact prayer, but in this manner. This is certain principles that we are to adopt in our prayer life and both are words that we use as we approach God, but equally those words embody a mentality. The way that we approach God is imaged in this prayer. Now, I have no problem with saying this prayer verbally. I have no problem with saying it even at a church together to be able to say this prayer as long as it is from an honest heart that means every word. But this doesn't mean that we should be as the heathen, as Matthew chapter 6 tells us and Jesus describes, that the heathen pray in repetition thinking that they are going to be heard, yet they're not. You see, it's not necessarily saying the same thing over and over again, but the mentality and attitude that is behind all of this prayer. Now, in the specific passage that we're going to read this morning in Luke chapter 11, you're going to notice that we're only going to go over a short portion. Now, we could really go over the entire prayer in one sermon, but I feel like we wouldn't do it justice, right? This is so in-depth. It is so theological. It is so practical. It is so experiential. But I think we need to dissect it each piece one at a time. So, Let's begin reading again in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, and we are going to read through verse 4. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, when he ceased one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in earth, so in he as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You'll notice that I begin to have slips of the tongue as I read from Luke 11 because I have Matthew 6 actually memorized. And sometimes they change up the words, yet it's the same meaning. Well, here we will look over this morning the phrase, Our Father which art in heaven. Now, Jesus has already been approached by his disciples and asked, Teach us, Lord, how you approach God. We learned last week that very often children, disciples, converts, they don't immediately come into a knowledge of Christ knowing everything they're going to need to know. They need to be taught many things. I'm always impressed how a turtle can hatch out of an egg and go into the ocean. It doesn't have to be parented. It doesn't have to be taught. It just goes out instinctually and knows everything. I wish my children were like that. I'd have very peaceful days every single day. Daddy, why this? Daddy, why that? I wish they just came out and immediately knew everything I had to teach them, but they don't. They have to be taught. Now, we as babes in Christ, whether it be people that are just 
recently born again by the Spirit of God, whether it be somebody that's just been stagnant in their faith, we may very often have to be taught certain principles and how to apply them. And here they see Jesus not just verbally teaching them, but in his example. They come to him soliciting from him how to pray. They see him as an example of somebody that they want to follow, and therefore they come to him and say, teach us, Lord, as John taught his disciples. We see other teachers teaching. We see other people teaching their disciples, their students, their converts how to pray. Lord, tell us now, teach us how to pray. And he looks at them and says, when ye pray, say, all right, I'm going to teach you some principles. He doesn't teach him something new here because you'll realize in the chronology or the narrative of the Gospels, this is after, this is after the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has already happened. You would think they would have already been given an answer for this, right? They would remember what the prayer actually was. I like the fact that it doesn't actually name which disciple it is. I'm wondering if it's one of the, the 12, right? <laughs> the 12 that were his closest disciples. And Jesus is just repeating the same thing over and over again. He's not giving them something new. He's not giving them something novel. But he's reminding them of some of the same truth. He says, just as he did back then, when ye pray, say. Well, you'll notice in this prayer... And we mentioned some of the aspects of it last week, how it goes over the way we approach God, the way we think and approach our own needs collectively, and also it ends, as we're going to see in Matthew 6, it ends with, again, a doxology or praise to God. Here, where we're looking at this morning when it says, Our Father, which art in heaven, this is what's called the introduction or invocation. It's immediately drawing our attention to something. It introduces. Now, after this, we're going to be given... Three petitions that directly relate to God. Three petitions that directly relate to man. And then in Matthew 6, we're given the final praise of God, the doxology, as he looks again to God after he says everything he has to say, and he praises him one more time. You see these when he says, Our Father which art in heaven, that invocation. He says, Hallowed be thy name. That's actually a petition. He's praying that God's name would be holy. Thy kingdom come. There's another one. Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. There's the three petitions to God. He turns his attention then to our view. Give us this day our daily bread. There's the first petition. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. There's the second petition involving humans and our relationships with each other and our relationship to life. And then the final one, and lead us not into temptation, but our Father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name as we focus on our father which art in heaven okay you'll notice at the very beginning it says our father are collectively here it does not read my father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will in earth as it is in heaven it does not say and lead me not into temptation but deliver me from evil the prayer you'll notice here is collectively involving the entirety of the church. Now, could it be that we could pray this individually and say, my Father which art in heaven? Absolutely. When I bow my head, I understand that God individually is my Father, that if it was only me who he would have chosen to save and send his son to die for, he would have. I have the blessing of knowing that he is my Father. But right here we see him addressed collectively, our Father, Two things we can learn from this as we are applying this to our own personal prayer life. One, 
we understand that we have one father and we are all one family. We're not these just single people that are out there. You know, I can do church on my own. You know, you, there's this thing nowadays called home church. And they try to get it from the New Testament where there was a person that had a church in their house. There's a difference between a church in your house and having home church. You know, Matthew 18 talks about how if you have a problem with a brother or sister, you take it to the church. Well, <laughs> if you have a home church, you're just going to take it to mommy and daddy, right? That doesn't fit the qualifications of having an elder, of having deacons, of having the ordinances of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. You don't have that there. And here we see the collective nature of the church, that we are brought together as one family. We're not just individual mavericks. We're not reckless. We're not saying I'm doing it on my own. But we are praying together our Father. We are under one banner, under the banner of God. The church is needed in the life of the child of God. And that stems from the fact that we read our Father. This is together collectively. Now, as I just said, it's needed in our life collectively. Not only are we not mavericks, but the reason we're not mavericks is because we need the prayers of everyone around us in the assembly of the saints. We sing that song where it says, um, I need the prayers of those I love. Uh, sometimes we sing those songs and we just sing it over and over again. I'm singing, you know, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. I need the prayers of those I love. And we just sing it and it's just words. But the idea of needing the prayers of those you love is really important. You know, sometimes um, I'll hear my children in the morning, and this is the funniest thing because the oldest typically knows how to get the youngest to do the dirty work, right? Always, every single time. I'll wake up in the morning and I'll hear them. It may be 5.30, and I've told them now, if it does not say 6 on that clock, you find something else to do on the weekends. I don't know why I have to drag y'all out of the bed on weekdays, but on the weekends, y'all are up at 5.30, bright and shining. I want lucky charms. Well, I want sleep. Go back to bed. Well, I'll hear them. 5.30 in the morning, I'll hear the oldest. Luke, Luke, go ask Daddy. He's getting him to ask a petition, right? You know, because one, it's easy to convince the youngest, <laughs> well, now the middle. But secondly, typically, and the way most families are, sometimes the youngest may get away with stuff, and so the oldest thinks if I send him in there, he'll get away with it. Or if I send him in there and daddy's mad, he'll get in trouble, not me. They need the help of the family to ask questions. Sometimes you'll see children come in together and ask the same question over and over again from a different viewpoint. Daddy, I want this. Daddy, I want this. Can we have this? Can we have that? And, you know, to a parent, it begins to just wear you down, and you're just like, just get it. <laughs> sure, we will watch Aladdin one more time. Yes, you can see it one more time. Just, just leave me alone for a second, because everybody begins to ask. You know, I don't think God is just there having to be strained and asked Yes, I'll help you out one more time. Yes, I will do it. Goodness, now 10 of them are asking me. That's not what God's doing like parents typically do or sometimes often do. But there is strength in numbers in the sense that together collectively, not only are we not mavericks, but we are together as one family, but likewise, there are strength for us as we come together to pray one with another. We have strength that is beyond this world as it were, simply from praying for each other. This isn't something we should overlook because collectively we are praying here. Our Father, we are together in this. We are together in this because we need each other in this. Our 
Father are collectively. So he begins immediately by saying, Our Father, which art in heaven. He begins by drawing their attention to the fact that this is a collective prayer. Well, secondly, you'll notice that he not only says are, he doesn't say my, but he says are. But then he goes on to say father. This was very odd for a first century Jew. You'll remember many times when Jesus would call God his father, the Jews would get angry. John chapter 10, when he said that his father in heaven, they took up stones to stone him because he said, you made yourself equal with God by calling him your father. You made him your equal in that sense. And that frustrated them. They took up stones to stone him. Sometimes people will say that God, that Jesus never, ever said that he was God. Well, the first century Jews sure thought that he did. They took up stones to stone him in that instance because he made himself equal with. Now, when we say our father, we're not making ourselves equal with God in the same sense that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, the eternal Son of God. Forever in that relationship as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past, if I could use that language, we're not in that relationship. But there's two ways in which we can understand God in a parental sense. Now, some would make the distinction that God is first... Uh, the creator or covenant God over all creation. Now, that is true that God is the covenant-keeping creator God. The reasons the worlds continue to spin and seasons continue to come and go is simply because God has made a covenant with us that he would. The reason everything exists is simply because of God's benevolent watch care, right? Nothing happens that happens outside of his general providence and governance where he keeps everything together. But I don't think that God could be considered the father in a creative sense in this special sense. He's the creator, yes, but this is special language that is reserved for whom? Disciples asking Jesus, teach us to pray. This idea of God being our father is reserved for those to whom is praying to God through Jesus Christ. Those to whom God chose before the foundation of the world, those to whom God has sent his son to die. You see, we can say that God is our father because Jesus Christ has represented us on the cross and because we are in the covenant as he has adopted us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Only in that sense is this meant here in a specific special sense that God has chosen us to be his sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. Everyone can't say this. Jesus never ever told the Pharisees to pray our father. He never told the wickedness of the world. He would say you are of your father in John chapter 8 of the devil. He didn't say, well, you know, God's your father if you just stop acting like the devil, you know, sometimes <laughs> I tell my children that. <laughs> I'm your father, now stop acting like the devil. They may look at me and say, I am like, acting like you, right, Dad? That, no. Jesus looked at them and said, you are of your father, the devil, in a representative sense. They acted like those for whom that they were like. Likewise, only those who have been touched by divine grace, who have come to Christ through the new birth, who have ears to hear, as John chapter 8 describes, and then in John chapter 10, who are his sheep, who are made able to believe. Only those can say this, 
our Father. Can you see the special blessing that God has given us as his children to say, our Father? This isn't just something we should gloss over. The Old Testament saints did not know much about this. They looked at God as being distant. And so this was revolutionary to their mind to think that God is not just a God out there. Even in Islam today, which is kind of an offshoot of uh, Judeo-Christian beliefs and a perversion of it as it connects it with paganism of the Middle East, and they look at God as somewhere way out there. God is way out there. He kind of this God, you can't really know him that well. You know that you're trying to do good, you know, and you're trying to work your way to heaven, but at the end of the day, you don't really know if he's going to accept it. He may just cast you out. And you never address him as father. But Jesus here looks at his disciples and says, begin this way, our father. This teaches us two things. First, it teaches us that he is near. The God who is out there is also a God who is near. It shows familiarity. It shows a family relationship. It shows that God is not just somebody out there who is unattainable, but God is our Father. There's a reason why in the two places where it describes how the Spirit of God works in us, the Spirit of adoption, and you'll notice both in Galatians 4 and also in Romans 8 how it describes it as the spirit of adoption. It doesn't say we're adopted because we cry, Abba, Father, but it says the spirit of adoption because we are sons. Our hearts cry, Abba, Father. It uses two different words there. Gives us this view is our heart now looking to God. Now, I'm not saying that we are to speak irreverently as we're going to see the latter part of this verse describes, or the latter part of this expression describes when it says, which art in heaven, but it still gives us this view that God is approachable. God is family. God is our family. We are his children. There's a blessing in knowing that you have somebody in your life that you can approach at all times. You'll probably, some of you who are older, who have parents that have passed on, you know, we take for granted that they're there one day, and then the next day they're not. You know, we, we take for granted that idea. I remember when my mother had her brain surgery. The idea of losing her was just, it brought me to a position that I did not know that I could physically have and emotionally endure. I remember one day we had just moved into an apartment, we had just moved back, and by the providence of God, God allowed us to be able to be back at the same time that she was undergoing this, and I just broke down in front of Rebecca. I didn't even, I couldn't control it, I didn't mean to, I wasn't trying to, but I just finally broke down. The idea of not being able to just communicate to her at any times, and I'm sure that many of you who have not had your parents for many years could just say, if I could just pick up that phone one more time, if I could just see them at Christmas, if I could just see them at Thanksgiving, if we could just sit here and commune one more time with my parents, whether it be father or mother, if I could just sit there with their wisdom, with their strength, with their love, if I could just show them appreciation one more time, Lord, I miss my parents so much. If I could just communicate with them. And the first thing we're given here is the nearness of God and the openness of God to where he is always a God who is also a father to where we can all the time communicate with him. The blessing of knowing that God is always there. He is not some king or only a king who is out there in a palace 
to where we think, will he hear us? Will he um, beckon to our petitions? Will he answer us? But he is not just that, but he is a loving father, our collective father, family relationships where God is near you at all times. Not only does it describe the nearness that we have, but equally it describes the special care that we're given. You'll notice later on in Luke chapter 11, as we're given the description through parables of what this means to us, you see God is not just going to give us our prayer, but he's going to give us both motivation and what it means to us to pray this prayer as he gives parables that go on through verses 5 through 13. And you'll notice in verse 11 it says, If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father... I love how Jesus would always tie it into their experience. Jesus didn't just preach theoretically. He didn't just ignore the crowd. He didn't just close his eyes and go about his business and not pay attention. He's like, no, you people who are fathers, think about this. As I've already addressed God as our father, think, you who are fathers. If a son shall ask bread, any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Now, I probably would just as a joke. <laughs> you know, I sometimes, at one time... I've stopped doing this to my children because it drives them nuts, but they'll say, Daddy, I'm so hungry. I'm like, well, here's a sandwich. They're like, that's not a sandwich. I was like, no, it's an air sandwich. Eat it. <laughs> you know, so maybe I'm not the best analogy to use here, but, you know, sometimes I harass them. But you think about this. A serious petition of a child who is starving, if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Is a father a person who is set over the watch care of a child who's in his right mind, going to ignore the special needs of their child ordinarily. Now, I know in latter times, men shall be lovers of the, their own selves. I know that in today's times, we see a forsaking of children in one of the most dangerous places you can be is in a mother's womb. I understand that in today's times, and I'm not being mean or blunt, but I am. But at the same time, ordinarily, as God has set it out, if a father, if a parent is asked of a child, shall I give him a stone? If he asks of a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? And the point is, these are rhetorical questions. If you ask a father of something, if you ask a mother of something, ordinarily, typically, you're going to have that familiar love, that nearness that is there, and stemming from that, not only a nearness, a familiar, familiarity, but you're going to have special care from them because of it. There are people that I'm familiar with that I know a lot about, but I don't show them special care. You see, it goes beyond just knowledge to special care. I know a lot of children. I know a lot of ladies, but there's only one lady who has my love, and there's only three children that I'm going to feed every single day. Now, if a child walked up every single day around lunch, I would feed them. You know, I'm not that guy. I would help. But you see my point, that special, not only nearness, I know a lot about a lot of people. Unfortunately, as a pastor, you know a lot about a lot of people that you don't ever want to know, <laughs> and people just want to tell you. You know a lot about a lot of people. But at the same time, it goes from just knowledge and nearness to special care. And Jesus uses this and says, If ye then being evil, you who are not as perfect as your God in heaven, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit 
to them that ask him. And notice it's tied directly to the third person of the Godhead, how God bestows his blessings on us in this world. You see, he is our father, he is near, and he gives special care. And then he transitions into the next portion, our father, but then he says, which art in heaven. And I think this is a special connection here because it's going to do two things. It's going to show us a little bit about the types of blessings we get, but also the attitude in which that we understand our father to be. So first we see, as it says, which art in heaven, we see the type of father that we have. He directs us to what kind of father. You may have somebody, and I've noticed this in today's society, where people are prejudiced against certain language in the Bible because of their experience. Let me explain. If you have a very bad father, and I'm hoping none of my children say amen, if you have a very bad father, a very bad one, whatever type of neglect or abuse that may be experienced in your environment, if you hear the term that God is a father, what is that going to do to you when you're reading the scriptures? It's going to make you think, well, if he's a father, I don't want anything to do with him. Nothing at all. You can say, ah, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. If you hear that God is a husband and you've been a wife who has been in an abusive relationship, how are you going to view that language? Very negative, very negatively. Ugh, if I can get my words out. All that medicine, I'm telling you, it could tranquilize a horse this week. But if you could think about how this language may affect somebody reading it. Our Father. Well, this is why he attaches it to this expression, which art in heaven. Now, I'm going to turn real quick to the book of Isaiah. And there's some language there that I found reading many years ago, and it has stuck out to me. Isaiah chapter 56 here Isaiah is describing how sometimes we lose things for our following Christ, following God. And he starts out by kind of acknowledging in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 2, how blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. He's kind of setting a scenario that... A person is blessed for following God. You see he's keeping the Sabbath. He's worshiping God. He's not polluting it. He's not doing any evil. And then he addresses something that happens when somebody follows God. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. He brings up two specific groups here. Somebody who's been separated or excluded from those in society because they're following God. And then he brings up the example of a eunuch, somebody who cannot have children, whether by choice or by their natural biology. You have two different groups here, one that is forsaken for following God, and then the other which cannot bear children. And he says this, and I'm going to tie this into the idea of our father. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant, even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than the sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger, he goes from the eunuch, then to the stranger, 
that join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to the holy mountains and make them joyful in the house of prayer. We'll stop there reading. But what is the point of that in Isaiah 56? Whatever we have lost, whatever prejudices we have in our own mind, in our own sight, whatever we have been affected by in life, God, God in a sense, is an anti-type of that. God is the fulfillment of what we've been longing for. If a person has a bad husband, praise be unto God, they have a spouse in heaven, right? As his church, the church of God, we have a husband who watches and cares for us. If we have given up all things and have been forsaken, praise God, the Lord never forsakes us. If we have not a good earthly father, praise God, he doesn't just say, Our Father, hallowed be thy name, but he says, Our Father, which art in heaven. He says, Our Father, who is above all earthly evil fathers, who may have prejudiced us against the view of a father, but yet God tells us that the father that he is to us is of a different origin is of a better origin, is of a pure origin, who no matter what is not abusive, is not neglectful, who is always here for us because he is above what is hurting us. He is in the heavens. You see, he gives us this view of God that is not just as a father, but as a heavenly father. All of my problems as being a dad, I realize that they can prejudice my children their view of God. It makes me very quick to apologize when I do wrong. When I lose my temper, I realize how long-suffering God has been to me. But then I praise God that regardless of my small, evil example, that they can look to the Word of God and see that there is one who no matter what is not going to fail them as a dad. Praise God that he attaches it to heavenly. So not only heavenly, we're prejudiced against us, yet God is greater than all of the bad examples we have, whatever we've lost, whatever has hindered us, as we saw in Isaiah 56, God gives us greater than that. He fulfills a role that is needful in every one of his children's life. This is why he gives us these examples as being a husband, as being we are his bride, we are his children, he is our father, and he is always heavenly in origin. He is the fullness of what all relationships should be here. Let that sink in. God is the fullness of every relationship here. Whatever we want to have here, God and the relationship he has with his children, his bride, his church, is its fullness. Okay, not only that, but it also gives us the type of answers that he gives us. As we saw in the parable directly after this, you know, sometimes I harass my children, and I've, I've, I've calmed down a little bit because it kind of gets old after a while. I'm the kind of dad that will wrap a box for their birthday and not put anything in it, you know. <laughs> Just here, I got you a present. There's nothing in there. It's a box, you know. <laughs> Let's have fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm the dad that will walk up and flip the breakers in the house to harass them when they're in the middle of a game and all that good stuff. I, I, it's probably just how I was raised. Um, my dad did it to us. We were, uh, you know, as people tell me, they're boys, and we all act like it. You know, the blessing that we have, not only that God is a heavenly father, which shows who he is in his essence, his attributes, who he is. He is a father that is greater than all of the inadequacies of any earthly father. 
Yet at the same time, the blessings that he gives, both in quality and quantity. What I mean by that is in quality, everything he gives is perfect and good. An earthly father may give discipline out of anger. He may yell when he shouldn't. He may do things that are wrong, yet we understand in James chapter 1 that what he gives every good and perfect gift. In 1 John chapter 1, we learn that he is the father of lights, right? In him is no darkness at all. Everything he gives us is perfect, pure, and good. So in quality, it is perfect. Whatever he gives, it's heavenly in origin. And this is one reason why we come to be able to say the rest of the prayer. When we say, thy will be done, as it's done in heaven, let it be done in earth. Because when we understand the quality of his will in heaven, we're going to understand that what he gives us in earth is good. He is a good father. And whatever kind of blessing he gives us, however confusing it may be, because sometimes children get confused. Sometimes I will tell my children we can't eat yet. Well, why not? And I want to just say, because I said so. (laughs) But I have to give them a good answer. You see, this beginning portion, when we read our Father, which art in heaven, art in heaven answers a lot that goes on after this. Our Father, which art in heaven, we understand the quality of whatever he gives, whatever he suffers, whatever he does in our life is heavenly in origin, and therefore it's pure and good. But also in its quantity. God never stops giving it, right? There have been times where my children have really, 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 really wanted something. I hesitate to mention a certain tree house that has been promised for two years now, (laughs) but we've been busy. I hesitate to mention certain financial inadequacies that we may have had when we first had our boys, and we may have not been able to fully provide for them as we'd wanted to. You know, and even though the quality of what I was giving them was out of love, was out of kindness, was out of our compassion for our children, the quantity was not there. I couldn't give them everything I wanted to. I couldn't give them exactly what I wanted to on a daily basis, and I just had to sit there crippled, feeling that I cannot provide for my family. You see, not only when we read that God is our Heavenly Father, do we see the quality or type of blessings he gives us, but we see the quantity. He has an unending storehouse of daily blessings that never ends. Nothing is beyond the ability of our God. When it says that he can do exceeding abundantly above anything we think or ask and then attaches it to what he has done in the hearts of all of his children— Think about that. If God, and that's in Ephesians chapter 3, at the very end of the chapter, when you think about what God has done in your heart, raising your dead soul to life in Christ, if he can do that, is there anything too hard for the Lord? As it says in Romans chapter 4, saying those things which are not as if they are, as he prophesied and proclaimed in his determinate counsel that Sarah would bring forth a son though her womb was dead she knew that he could and they were both enabled by hope to rejoice because they knew that that God could do it unending storehouse God 
gives us that blessing to know that he is our father, but he's not like earthly fathers. He's above it. He's better than it. In both quality, kind, and quantity, God is far above anything that we can imagine in this life. And if you have a good earthly father, if you remember your father in fondness and care, praise God for that example to where you've been prejudiced to think of God in a good light. Now imagine that example that you were given in your father that was good, and then think how much better and gracious our God in heaven is. So he gives us this, and then he begins to kind of pull our attention. I think which art in heaven and hallowed be thy name are attached Though hallowed be thy name is a petition, he's asking for God to be called holy. Yet at the same time, he's doing it as he attaches it to our Father which art in heaven. And we'll look at the hallowed be thy name as a petition next week, Lord willing. But specific to the text, not only does God say our Father which art in heaven, in the sense that we're familiar with him, we know who he is, we know exactly Uh, that we're family, he watches over us, he cares for us, but it also gives a dimension of respect. I hear all the time people complaining about these millennials that have no respect for their elders, right? And I'm still mad because I was not a millennial when I was a teenager. We were Generation Y, and they changed it to just one big generation called the millennials. That drives me crazy. I am not a millennial. I grew up with a Texas instrument with MS-DOS with AOL trying to upload. I mean, that is not a millennial, right? That they redefined us. I hate it when they reclassify stuff. And, you know, you have this idea of how disrespectful the youth is to the elderly. You know, and every generation says that. If you look back at Socrates and see some of the quotes or... Um, Aristotle, I mean, and see some of the quotes that they say about the youth of their age, it sounds like you're reading something today. Every generation complains about the generation after them. That's just life in the human dimension. As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, we have this view of how disrespectful people are to, let's say, their parents. And you can even see in public when a child mouths off to the parent, everybody in the room turns. That, That view now, people that are presently parents turns and gives a different look. They say, we understand, because <laughs> they're still dealing with it. You know, there's no judgment there. They're like, no, I get it. But, you know, everybody turns and looks, thinking, that child just say that? Imagine going past, again, the earthly realm. Going past how we may disrespect our parents in just a temporal sense. I praise God that we have the ability to understand God as our Father. Relationally, we can talk about being familiar with Him. He's near. He gives special blessings through His Holy Spirit. Yet, without removing any reverence or fear that we have. You see, He's not just a Father to be disrespected. Sometimes He's not, you know, you walk up to somebody. Nowadays, a lot of people don't like to be called uh, Mr. or Mrs. To most of the neighborhood children, I'm Mr. Josh, or I'm Luke and Levi's dad. I've lost all sense of identity. I mean, <laughs> somewhere along the way, I'm, I'm no longer like Josh Winslet. I'm no longer Pastor Josh. I'm Mr. Josh, which means I'm somebody's parent, or I'm Luke and Levi's dad. That's who I am now. I have no individuality. I'm attached to other people, or Rebecca's husband. That's just what I am. I've come to grips with that. But, you know, 
So people don't really like the phrase being called Mr. anymore. I still like it. I still teach my children yes or no, sir. But if we consider that there should be respect from one generation to the next in just our temporal world, how much more should we show the fear of God and our Father from the aspect of earth to heaven? I'm not going to walk up and say, hey, bud, why haven't you done this for me yet? Bow my head and begin to speak irreverently to our God. I'm not going to walk up and use his name in vain and begin to just talk about my God in such um, just ways that are unbecoming to his holiness and his goodness and his righteousness. This morning, somebody asked me, what is it or how do we define the fear of the Lord? And I said, awareness and reverence to his holiness. Because at the end of the day, yes, he is familiar with us. Yes, because of God's son dying for us and opening the holiest of holies, allowing us to come unto God by Christ. Yet at the same time, we should never lose this aspect to understand he is still heavenly in origin. He is our God, our Father, who is in heaven. Praise God we can be familiar. Praise God he is near to us. Praise God he sets his special care upon us. But nonetheless, he is still God in heaven. I've been told this before, that sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter how big a younger brother gets. He's still intimidated by his big brother. doesn't matter how big a son gets how much he lifts weights, how, much, how, how bad he thinks he gets, his dad still has a little bit of intimidation on him. I want you to consider that in a greater scale. No matter how big we get in our, of ourselves, we should never lose that reverent, fearful approaching of God, even when we seek him as our Father. Our Father, which art in heaven. Praise be unto God that God is both approachable but he's yet still divine. We should take comfort in knowing that God is our Father, but we should always pause to equally know that our Father in heaven is still God. And at the end of the day, we can take comfort seeing that he's not just a God that is out there, but he is a God that as he goes on through the entirety of this prayer is concerned with our daily lives. He is heavenly in origin from eternity past. Yet because of his special watch, care, and grace in your life, he is your father. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this day and your love and your kindness. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are our father. We thank you that you are our God. We pray, Lord, that we would never lose the fearful reverence that we have, knowing that you are immutable, that you are all-powerful, that you are, Lord, our sovereign Lord and governor of the universe. But, Lord, I equally pray that regardless of our prejudiced mind about earthly fathers, that we would understand that you are different in every way, that both in quality and and quantity, Lord, that you give us so much better than anything that we can have in this world, that you are good, you are kind, you are loving, 
and Lord, that you have saved us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, now that we would acknowledge this fact that you are both to be reverenced and you are both to be approached. Our God, we thank you that you have set your, your special watch care upon us. We pray, Lord, that we would approach you now with reverence and throughout this week know that you are always there, that you are always present, and Lord, that we do not have to miss those conversations that we miss with our early, earthly parents. But Lord, you are always here with us in Christ's name. And amen.